is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffland and Sonia Portillo. For this edition of the Alcazine Brief, we sat down with Dr. Jonathan Lim, Chairman, CEO and Co-Founder of Ignita. Dr. Lim served as a member of the Board of Visitors of the Morse Cancer Center at the University of California, San Diego, and as an advisory council member of Stanford BioX, an initiative by Stanford University to foster interdisciplinary medical research. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Hovland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Youngers in Brief. In 2011, Dr. Lim co-founded Ignita as a chairman, and he joined full-time as the president and CEO in 2012. At Ignita, he is currently focused on the mission of developing precision medicines that can eventually eradicate residual disease in certain well-defined cancer populations. We spoke with Dr. Lim at this year's annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, which took place June 2nd through 5th in Chicago, Illinois. During our interview, Dr. Lim talked about some of the exciting data presented at ASCO, including the development of novel treatments that target gene fusions that drive tumor growth. These new approaches are focused on molecular targets rather than tumor histology and are changing the way we look at cancer treatment for a range of patients with unmet medical needs. Currently, Ignita is developing Entractinib a drug that is designed to target precise causes of certain cancer types that are caused by multiple gene rearrangements or fusions, all with one single therapy. In addition, the company is running their clinical trials quite differently. Dr. Lim explained that the company is conducting so-called basket trials. This means that they focus on a specific cancer cause regardless of the location or type of cancer. Dr. Lim also explained why for certain well-defined patient populations, attacking the genomic cause of disease may not only have the potential to shrink tumors, but to eradicate relapse and recurrence altogether. After the break, we'll be back with Dr. Lim. Dr. Lee, welcome to the Augustine Brief here at the 53rd Annual Meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, here in Chicago. If you uh, look here at uh, the enormous amount of people that are uh, roaming around in the hallways and looking and listening to presentations and posters, um, there is a, a, a lot of excitement to hear at ASCO. So um, you've been here maybe a couple of hours, I guess. So what are your uh, expectations or what are you looking forward to seeing here? Well, I'm looking forward to, and first of all, thank you very much for the invitation to be here. Uh, we're very excited about two main areas of oncology development. One is targeted therapies, uh, and then the second is, of course, uh, immuno-oncology. And in fact, these are the two pillars that Ignita, our company, is focused on. Uh, so we're really keen to uh, understand uh, what's been going on in terms of the landscape of molecularly targeted therapies, namely in uh, the TRAC and ROS space, which is where our lead program in Tractinib is predominantly focused on. And then we're also interested in following the uh, immuno-oncology combination approaches with some of the PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors and 
you can imagine there's a lot of excitement in that arena as well. Um, one of our pipeline programs, RxDX106, is a TAM inhibitor, so it's Tyro 3, Axel, and Mer, and we're hoping to bring that into the clinic later this year, so we're excited to uh, get uh, updated on, on that space while here at ASCO. So looking at uh, the, the track uh, things that you mentioned, um, it's quite interesting because in the past when we were looking at cancer, uh, people had bone cancer, breast cancer, uh, GI cancer, or whatever form of cancer. Uh, my understanding of listening to some of the presentations and some of the data that comes out right now is that we are now looking at a different way to first of all identify cancer and to be able to treat cancer. It's now more on, not necessarily on the site of origin, but it is more on the molecular makeup. That's exactly right. And so I think we're moving towards an era of precision medicine where we're be becoming tumor agnostic or tissue agnostic. And I think you can do that when you have a very strong oncogenic driver, such as TREK, for instance, maybe even ROS1, uh, where the presence of that single oncogenic driver seems to matter more than the site of origin. Uh, I think the news recently from uh, Merck's uh, Keytruda, where they received the first ever molecular label approval in MSI high patients, I think that was uh, a real landmark uh, approval. And uh, in fact, our lead program in Tractinib has a breakthrough therapy designation for TREK tumor agnostic uh, uh, label or indication. And so we're excited to move forward also in, in this tumor agnostic space. So when you look at a clinic, for example, an oncologist, maybe a community center, uh, looking at the enormous amount of information that comes out, um, how would, for example, community oncologists translate this, understand this, be able to work with this? Uh, because obviously it's a whole different way of, of treating cancer or looking at cancer and um, benefiting patients in a different way. Yeah, it's a good question. I think the academic uh, medical center physicians are becoming more comfortable with this with their own uh, multi-gene assays. And then there's a number of companies like Foundation Medicine, uh, for instance, that have uh, multi-gene panels that may one day get uh, approval. Uh, I think the community docs are, are becoming more comfortable as well. But historically, it's been a matter of not having enough uh, therapeutics that can go after these uh, dominant oncogene drivers. And so it's a matter of, uh, I think, having more um, actionable mutations or molecular alterations where you have not only the diagnostic to identify them, but also that they can be paired up with the appropriate therapeutic. And so it's that RxDx paradigm that Ignita and others uh, in the space are working on, which I think is, is very exciting. In, in that way, you make it more understandable, more actionable for um, not only for academic centers, but basically for the community centers that really need that help. That's correct. And I think um, it really, at this point, varies somewhat by the tumor type. And so, for instance, in lung cancer, where you have thoracic oncologists that do genotyping very frequently for almost all of their patients, uh, I think there's less education required than, say, in head and neck or sarcoma, where there's not a lot of uh, actionable alterations that then can be paired up with, with therapeutics. And so I think in some of those other tumor types, 
there will be uh, some additional education that's that's required simply because there's not this critical mass of actionable oncogenes and therapeutic options. Shifting gears a little bit, um, of, of course your, your drug and your, your approach is in clinical trials. Um, and a lot of interesting results with that. It's very uh, congratulations with some of the very exciting stuff that is being presented. Thank you. Um, but one of the things is that I can only imagine that if you look at the regulatory environment, uh, whether it's here in the United States or in Europe or other countries, um, how do regulators look at this combination um, of diagnostics and treatments, uh, and how different is that for them? Well, I think the wonderful thing about the regulatory landscape is that uh, regulators globally are very scientifically driven. And I think when they see strong science and uh, strong clinical data, that's really moving the needle in terms of how they're looking at uh, you know, setting the, the regulatory guidelines. And so even um, the, the most recent uh, FDA approval from uh, Pembrolizumab that I mentioned earlier uh, you know, that was a data-driven decision, and FDA showed that they're amenable to uh, providing a tumor-type uh, agnostic label or indication. Uh, I think likewise in the TREC space, they've granted two breakthrough therapy designations, and, um, and TREC ended up being the recipient of one of them. And so I think the uh, regulatory climate is very conducive uh, at this time to, uh, towards this, uh, this notion of Rx and Dx. So when you, um, when you look at that and when you look at some of the, the good results that, for example, came out of, out of the Star Trek 1 clinical trial, um, now being in a registration enabling uh, second trial, the, the Star Trek uh, 2 trial, um, what are your hopes in, in, in that? Yeah, so Star Trek II, uh, we provided some very exciting data uh, actually a, a couple months ago showing that uh, in our ROS1 non-small cell lung cancer data set, uh, out of 32 patients, uh, we showed a 75% confirmed uh, objective response rate. And so that was um, uh, very strong data. We also showed that uh, patients with brain metastases uh, also had very good responses. And so our hope is that uh, with Star Trek II to be able to demonstrate similarly compelling results, uh, maybe across other ROS1 patients. And then also um, we are focused on uh, two main targets of interest, TREC and ROS. And so we look forward to reporting data on our patients with TREC uh, uh, fusions. So a little bit more about uh, the diagnostic approach. I mean, the interesting thing, what I understood from the information that was, was, was presented, was that the diagnostic approach is a two-step two, um, a, a two diagnostic process. Um, can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, with uh, finding TREC fusions, it, it's very important to uh, be able to identify uh, the uh, fusions that occur in NTREC2 and NTREC3 genes, which have large intronic regions. And so if you look at DNA only, um, where NTREC2 and NTREC3 are such large genes, it's possible that you might miss the breakpoints to then identify uh, the, the TREC uh, fusion protein. Um, and so one of the things that we've done is uh, with our own in-house diagnostic is we look at the uh, RNA 
for these uh, uh, for these rearrangements. Um, the the two step is that uh, in certain cases where uh, sites, especially outside the U.S., may not have access to next gen sequencing to be able to go straight to RNA. Uh, the first step is they could use IHC to be able to identify whether um, there's uh, even a, a possibility of, of identifying a patient. And if, if their uh, patient is IHC positive, they can then get the confirmatory test of next-gen sequencing. If they're IHC negative, then are, um, uh, the chances of them being uh, negative for the rearrangement is, is pretty much 100%. So it's a great screening step to be able to enrich the subsequent population for uh, confirmation. Um, but I think the, uh, the penetration of next-gen sequencing amongst all of these global sites is getting to the point where uh, most of these sites can go straight to the single step of next-gen sequencing of RNA. So obviously this is a great benefit to uh, physicians as well as to the patients that would they treat. I mean, um, but one of the things that comes to mind and it is obviously a question that uh, you know, probably not the first time that you hear that question, when it comes to cost and, and associated with the diagnostic part in combination with the treatment part, some of the things might be um, difficult to present. Um, but I understand that your approach actually makes things more affordable. That's right. And I think the, uh, the cost of the diagnostic relative to the therapeutic is, is really quite small. Um, and in fact, in the clinical trial setting, we offer all of the diagnostic testing uh, free of charge. Um, I think actually a bigger problem is, um, you know, in terms of uh, from a cost perspective, is, is more with the therapeutic combinations, much more so than the combination of the therapeutic with the diagnostic. Um, I think the diagnostics themselves, uh, the, uh, they're sort of uh, moving along Moore's Law, where it's becoming better, faster, cheaper. Uh, and so I don't think cost is going to be an issue with the diagnostic. That's actually good news. <laughs> um, one of the other things is that you see a lot of companies looking at, at the populations that are rather small. And so also in, in, in a number of, of patients that actually harboring uh, the diffusions uh, that we are we're talking about in, in, in treatment uh, for ROS or TRAP, um, there's a very small population, unfortunately, GI. Um, how does that affect the whole um, approach to the, these, these kind of uh, therapeutics? It really changes the, the testing uh, paradigm where uh, with TREK, for instance, the fusions are found in more than 30 different tumor types. And in our Star Trek II study, for instance, this is the global pivotal study that's open in 15 countries and over 130 sites worldwide. Um, and in that study, we've already seen more than 15 different tumor types. So in terms of the approach, um, with some of the more common tumor types like uh, uh, GI cancers, um, you know, colorectal cancer, uh, the uh, incidence or frequency of these TREK fusions is in less than 1% of the most common tumor types, including lung cancer. But then in more rare tumor types like uh, secretory breast cancer or MASK, which is a type of salivary gland tumor in the head and neck region, um, the uh, frequency can be over 90%. So I think it really changes the paradigm in terms of just trying to 
test uh, as many patients as possible, irrespective of what their primary tumor is, and then if they're positive for a fusion like NTRAC, and if there's a, uh, this is an actionable fusion with a uh, investigational drug like entrectinib, then I think that's where we're moving as an industry. Uh, the more actionable oncogenes that can be paired with uh, therapeutics that are appropriately tailored to those oncogenes, I think is ultimately beneficial for the patient. Now, one of the things that was presented in, in, in a number of presentations here is that if you look at tissue-specific uh, diagnostics and treatment, um, you may miss, for example, track. I mean, was mentioned uh, in one of the presentations, which may be um, uh, people were not looking at that, people were not looking for it, were not searching for it. Uh, in that way, they were missing an opportunity for treatment or helping the patients. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I think part of that has to do with my earlier point about the tumor type. And so I think in lung cancer or even in melanoma, where uh, the thoracic oncologists and the melanoma treating physicians are very um, accustomed to uh, genomic sequencing, uh, I think the likelihood of missing uh, these fusions is lower than it is in uh, relatively uncharted territory like uh, head and neck or sarcoma. And so I think it's very important to um, raise awareness of uh, TREC as an oncogene in some of these uh, other tumor types where genomic testing isn't as high. And I think over time, that's going to um, hopefully uh, uh, increase. So overall, if you look at what you're doing, if you look at um, uh, the oncology field in general, if you look at um, where we are right now in diagnostics and in, in treatment options, um, you look back 10, 15 years ago, you look to today, maybe 5, 10 years in the future, how do you see things really changing or not? Yeah, I think it's really exciting uh, where we are as a, as a, um, a community of, of uh, people and professionals fighting cancer. And so I think uh, we've come a long ways in terms of targeted therapy. We've come a long ways in terms of uh, immuno-oncology. Uh, I think the wave of the future um, includes things like uh, applying precision medicine to immuno-oncology. So precision immunotherapy, um, I think as an RxDx company, Ignite is looking forward to playing a role there. Uh, I think even if you look at the um, PD-1 situation where uh, you know one company took a, a targeted immuno-oncology approach and the other took a one-size-fits-all approach, and I think um, you know, history has shown the, the wisdom of taking that more precision approach and then uh, going broad, broader from there. Uh, I think we're, we're starting to look at, at that uh, type of concept as we build for the future. Yeah. That brings back to um, a question that uh, I've been asking many years in a row right now simply uh, because it is uh, often very confusing. Uh, people talk about, or physicians and scientists, they talk about precision medicine, they talk about personalization, personalized medicine, uh, target approach. Um, <clears throat> actually, the funny thing is that if you ask uh, one individual and you ask another individual, they all have different kind of explanations uh, about the meaning of what they're talking about. Um, so what would be a proper understanding when we talk about personalized medicine, targeted therapies, uh, precision medicine? Yeah, so... I guess conceptually it's really just making sure that you provide uh, a drug or a therapeutic option to the right patient at the right time. 
Um, and then what that means in terms of uh, precision immunotherapy, for instance, is uh, finding the right biomarker or the, the right um, uh, population of patients to uh, optimize the efficacy within that population. So, for instance, with, uh, with pembrolizumab, I think the idea that uh, if you give that to patients with MSI high as opposed to MSI low, um, then the MSI high patients are much more likely to respond. And in fact, the efficacy rates have been really quite striking. And so um, it may not be true personalized medicine because it's not tailoring it for the individual patient, but in terms of population of patients with MSI high united by that, Signal. I, I think that's um, where we're moving towards. And then ultimately, as an industry, it would be really great to, uh, to tailor it um, for, for each patient, but I, I think we're still a ways away from that. So looking at the drugs, the agents that you are developing, um, your pipeline, what are some of the differentiating kind of uh, t drugs, tools, approaches that uh, we can see from your company? Yeah, good question. So as a company, we have a broad vision of eradicating residual disease in patients uh, that are precisely defined uh, populations. And so um, our lead program in Tractinib is focused on patients that have uh, TREC and ROS fusions. Uh, the uh, interesting aspect of Intractinib is that it is a CNS active drug. And so it was specifically designed to cross the blood-brain barrier and in fact, we've seen uh, really remarkable shrinkage, if not eradication, of tumors that have metastasized to the brain, as well as shrinkage of primary brain tumors. Um, so this is a, a compound that uh, I mentioned earlier is uh, in a global phase two study called Star Trek II, uh, and we're planning to uh, file two NDAs, one for Trek as well as Ross in 2018, and then we're looking forward to launching this uh, in 2019. I think another uh, compound worth commenting on is RxDX106, which is our uh, lead immuno-oncology asset. And this is a program that uh, hits Tyro3, Axel, and MER, uh, and plays an immunomodulatory role uh, by targeting the myeloid compartment. And so the TAM family of receptors plays an important role in the uh, NK cells, macrophages, and dendritic cells. And it works similar to um, PD-1, where it basically puts the brakes on these myeloid cells. And so a TAM inhibitor like 106 can help release the brakes on the myeloid compartment and basically allow the innate immune system to mobilize along with the adaptive immune system. And so it could be complementary, if not synergistic, with the checkpoint inhibitors. And so we're excited to explore this both as a single agent as well as a combination uh, agent with uh, the uh, checkpoint inhibitors. And because it's a small molecule, it's basically a pill. So unlike the checkpoint inhibitors, it could, uh, which are intravenously administered, it would be really cool to have a uh, small molecule uh, pill that could be administered alone or in combination with some of the other immunotherapy approaches. In that way, making it much easier for people to adhere to the, the regimen drug treatment. That's right. And then also, um, there's this whole notion of patients with cold tumors that aren't responding and they need to have hot tumors. 
we're hoping that 106 could potentially help turn those cold tumors into hot ones and help more patients benefit from immunotherapy. And so collectively with the targeted agents like entrectinib, which crosses the blood-brain barrier, uh, I didn't mention RxDx105, but that's a targeted RET inhibitor, uh, and then RxDx106, which uh, is an immunomodulator. We think that this pipeline really positions Ignita well towards uh, potentially achieving our long-term goal of eradicating residual disease. Well, that's a definitely a very interesting kind of approach, and congratulations with the research that uh, you're doing, and that definitely with the, the success that we've seen from some of the uh, clinical trials that are out there. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for uh, your uh, participating in this program. It is interesting how regardless of the way one defines precision medicine, the end goal is all the same. To develop therapeutics and technology that is patient-centered and personalized, and which can diagnose and treat tumor types in a precise way, in order to eradicate disease while minimizing side effects. Yes, and the approach of targeting and focusing treatment by the genomic cause of cancer, regardless of tumor type and location, is certainly reshaping what we expect from cancer treatment. The interview you've just heard with Dr. Jonathan Lim, MD, Chairman, CEO, and co-founder of Ignita, was originally recorded and broadcast during the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, held June 2nd through 5th in Chicago, Illinois. We know that based on this interview, you may have questions. So please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, or Twitter. We'll post as many answers as we can on our website, ongazine.com, that is, O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hovland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Ongushin Brief. The Ongushin Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hovland, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and InPress Media Group. Support for the Uncazine Brief comes from our listeners and commercial underwriters. For more information about underwriting options, contact Sean Mayer at 949-923-1660, or visit our website at oncazine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and informational purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program, doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.